Welcome to the Infertility Stress Podcast, where we talk about how to care for your mind and your nervous system during your fertility treatment process so you can understand exactly how your body works and how to advocate for your best medical care. I'm Michelle Kapler, fertility-focused acupuncturist and Chinese medicine practitioner, board-certified reproductive specialist, and feminist mindset coach, and you've got episode 57. Hello, hello, my dear. Thank you so much for being here with me today. I have a really great interview that I want to share with you today with my colleague, Lucy Lines. Lucy and I came across each other in a Facebook group of fertility-focused practitioners, and I knew that I had to reach out to her to come on the podcast and talk about the work that she's doing. She spent years working in an IVF lab as an embryologist, so she has had a front row seat to see things happening in IVF cycles. And now she's working as an educator to help people understand their bodies more deeply and navigate their conception and family building experience from a more knowledgeable perspective, which in my opinion is such important work because body literacy should be top priority for people of all genders, but especially those with eggs and ovaries who are socialized as women. Before I dive into the episode, I want to give you Lucy's professional bio. As a fully trained and clinically experienced embryologist, Lucy has had the good fortune to travel the world practicing her craft in IVF labs in Australia, Sweden, Ireland, and the UK. Over her first 17 years in the fertility industry, she became increasingly frustrated over how the business aspect was creeping into large IVF companies and the huge gaps that was creating for patients across those services. After a redundancy at 37 weeks pregnant and at 44 years of age, she saw an opportunity to fill those gaps with education, care, support, guidance, and space for women and couples experiencing difficulties with their fertility, totally independent of big businesses. She now offers services through Two Lines Fertility with her signature program, IVF, WTF, her website and blog, e-courses, and of course, one-on-one support. She now helps women and couples feel empowered and more importantly, educated and in control of their fertility, whether they are at the beginning of considering growing their families in the depths of IVF treatment or anywhere in between. So without further ado, here is my interview with Lucy. Welcome, Lucy. Thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me, Michelle. How are you? I'm really good. It's first thing in the morning for me here. And just to say for everybody listening, Lucy is amazing. She lives on the other side of the world and she volunteered to come and talk to me at 930 at night. So thank you so much for that. That's my pleasure. All right. So Lucy, I've already told them a little bit about you professionally and what you do. But if you want to tell us a little bit about what you're up to, that would be great. Sure. Look, I um, I did my training as an embryologist and worked as a clinical embryologist for lots of years, mostly in Europe and Australia. Um, I then worked within IVF clinics and within the, the fertility space for a long time. And eventually, um, after about 17 years working in IVF clinics, I moved away from that and set up my own business service offering independent fertility guidance and support. So I kind of do that from a perspective of my own experience of recurrent miscarriage and difficulty conceiving, along with my experience of working within IVF clinics and watching the kind of big business behind the scenes of that and trying to sort of filter through that. Hmm. 
I think that's such important work. And one of the things that drew me to you originally, because we're part of a couple of online groups together, and I've seen your posts. And something that I really highly value in my work is body literacy, just helping people understand exactly what their bodies are doing. And this is for a couple of reasons. The first thing is that it can help them understand what's going on just from a knowing yourself more deeply perspective. But then also, I think that knowing exactly how things work and conversely, when things are not working well, it can help you advocate for better medical care if and when you need it, which I think is why what you were doing is so important. So I think that our plan today in the conversation is to get into a little bit of the 101. And then I do also want to talk a little bit about being in the context of IVF, because as an embryologist, you will have kind of an insider's look on how everything works. Talking about the body literacy thing, it's really intriguing to me, the stuff that we actually don't know about how our bodies work. Like it's just the number of people I talk to who who don't know stuff is is mind-blowing. And you think, Joe, if we we knew this stuff, then we might actually find a lot of things a whole lot easier. Yeah, 100%. And I think that especially in the context of fertility. And I don't know if it's the same where you are, but and it it very well may be. But I find that, and I think it's improving now, but just the tendency from a very young age to just not prioritize, especially people who are socialized as women, teaching them exactly how their bodies work. Because Throughout history, it's just been seen as kind of unnecessary to educate women on what's going on. The big message is don't have sex. And that's kind of all you need to know. But there's so much more than that. So what do you think is the biggest thing that's missing kind of from that young education high school piece? Look, I think it is all to do with that body literacy and it's all to do with understanding how your body functions. And, you know, certainly my high school sex ed and most people I speak to around here, high school sex ed leads you to believe that as soon as you withdraw birth control or look at a penis, you're going to be pregnant. And that's actually not the case. And and I have a lot of young people around me, nieces, nephews and, and their friends who get worried when their moods swing or, you know, they get really down and I, they ring me and they're like, I'm really depressed. And I'm like, are you depressed or are you just about to get your period? You know, <laughs> they're like, oh, no, I, I am. I'm like, yeah, well, that's okay then. That's really normal. In three days' time, you're going to feel great again. You know, and and that's what's really missing is is understanding the ebbs and flows and the fact that we are different every day. You know, our um, high school sex ed is very, very masculine-based and men are pretty much the same every day. They're not different every day, whereas women, we're, we're different every day. And... And we should embrace that and we should understand it and and roll with it more than we do. A hundred percent. And I love this conversation because you can also further apply it to just how we run things culturally in general. Like we run on a 24-hour cycle, the way we work, the way we schedule things, the way we expect people to perform regardless of their gender. And there's really no account taken into hey, there are some people that exist on this planet who function in different ways at different points in their cycle. And we don't include that in the way that we look at productivity at all. So I think this is such an important conversation. So to take it back to the conception and pregnancy and fertility, I love this basic question that you sent me, which is why is it so hard to get pregnant? Tell us about that. 
So I think, as I just said, I think we're led to believe that as soon as you look at a penis and and stop birth control, you're going to get pregnant. But actually achieving a pregnancy, and I hate the word achievement, but but getting pregnant um, is a series of chemical reactions that have to happen in a certain cascade order at a certain time, and it's very, very specific. It amazes me that anyone ever gets pregnant naturally um, because it's such a, it, it is such a series of chemical reactions. And, and we're, we're taught, you know, in our culture that um, if you work hard, you can have anything you want. And if it, you, you have a roadmap for everything you want to do, you go to school, you get a high enough mark, you go to uni, you get a high enough mark, you get a job, you, you know, you do well, you get bonuses. Everything's got a roadmap. And so then when you get pregnant, you, know, you want to start your family, you expect that there's going to be a, a roadmap for that. And when it doesn't follow the roadmap that you think you have, then you start to go back and check what you did wrong. And maybe you actually didn't do anything wrong. Maybe it's actually a whole lot harder to get pregnant than anyone really knew. Yeah, that's such an important part. And that's basic 101 stuff. And I see clinically and with the clients that I work with all the time, this sense of there's something wrong with me because this isn't happening quickly and because I'm not following this map and this these guideposts and my body isn't working in the way that I was told that it would for years. Again, that whole thing, you just look at a penis and it'll get pregnant. And that's a whole other conversation entirely. But I think that that's, that leads to this cycle of shame and negative self-talk. And even though it's part of norm of physiology to take, what is it up to a year to get pregnant on average? The statistics say that after 12 months of trying, roughly 80% of people will have conceived. So most people will conceive within 12 months. Um, and I guess a lot of primary care physicians, when, you know, GPs, when you go and see them um, early in your journey, they do a blood test and they send you away and say, come back in two or three months if you're not pregnant. They're really kind of bargaining on the fact that most people get pregnant in those first 12 months. Nothing they're actually checking is making any difference. They're just kind of bargaining on the fact that most people are going to conceive. Um, statistically speaking, if you haven't conceived after six months, there's about a 50-50 chance that you might need some help. But when people hear that, they think, oh, my God, that means they're going to do something really invasive. They're going to do you know, IUI or IVF or something. And actually, that help might just be some education that you missed at school. And it might just be some information around timing or various nutritional things you can do or other supportive things that you can do that are going to help your fertility. Amazing. So I know that you're an embryologist by trade and you can't think about embryos without thinking about the eggs. So let's talk a little bit about egg 101. Where do eggs come from? Do they run out? Can we actually impact our egg quality? Yes. So um, look, I spent the first probably 10 years of my career believing that if you had bad eggs, you just had bad eggs and that was just bad luck. There's so much new research now that that shows just exactly how much of an impact we can have on egg quality. Where do they come from? We're born with all the eggs we'll ever have. We actually have the most eggs we'll ever have about three months before we're born and you start losing them already then. So for those of your listeners who have daughters or are pregnant um, with 
baby girls. Um, by the time those girls are born, they actually already contain half of the genetic material of your grandchildren. So what you're doing when you're pregnant with your daughters uh, will impact your chances of becoming a grandparent, for example, because they're actually making the eggs that will later become your grandchildren. Do they run out? Yes, essentially that's what menopause is. So throughout our lives we we lose eggs. We start losing eggs before we're even born. Um, that carries on through childhood and then escalates once we hit puberty. Each time we go through one menstrual cycle, we ovulate one, in some rare cases, two eggs, but we actually lose anywhere up to 100, 200, 300 eggs per cycle. It varies very much from cycle to cycle and person to person. But in the three months before an ovulation, that's when we can really have an impact on the, I like to call it the health and the resilience of the egg as opposed to the quality. Quality sort of tends to um, lean towards the DNA of, of the egg and we can't really change that, um, the chromosomal status of the egg, but we can impact the health and resilience of the egg. How capable is that egg of coping with the first couple of days of development? That is so fascinating. And I love that reframe where we're not necessarily talking about the quality, because I think that that has a lot of negative connotations for some people, and it creates a lot of negative emotion around the eggs. And again, if you're talking about genetics, there really isn't anything you can do about it. But if we talk about repairing the resilience of eggs, I think that's a really more uplifting and positive way to look at it. So that's really interesting. Thank you for that. Another interesting question that I often get from people either clinically or through client work is people just have this assumption that you have to have sex bang on the day of ovulation. They're stressing themselves out using ovulation predictor kits or they're taking their temperature and it's just not a good scene for them. And I like to talk about how there's actually this window where the egg and the sperm live in the reproductive system. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So this is an ongoing argument that I have, not argument, conversation that I have with my Chinese medicine practitioner friends who love to send their patients home ba with basal body temperature charts and then they come and see me and I tell them to throw it away and then they go back to their Chinese medicine doctor and they get a new one and then they come and see me and I say throw it away. I think that a all of that ovulation tracking and, and basal body temperature charting and all of those things, they're all fascinating and it's all really interesting from a science perspective to look at all of those things but from a person perspective it's just adding a whole lot of drama to an already very dramatically drama-fueled environment and and a very tense environment if you've got to the stage of your trying to conceive journey where you're seeking help from people to help you establish when is your most fertile time then you're already very stressed you've already been through countless cycles of hope and grief and hope and grief and hope and grief each month and adding in that kind of pressure on yourself to try and pinpoint the day of ovulation um, is really just adding a whole lot more stress. So um, the egg, it's true, the egg only survives for the statistic or the data tells us, that the peer-reviewed data tells us 24 hours. I prefer to think it's more like 12 hours. I think it's less than 
the data tells us, but sperm survive for three to five days in the female reproductive tract. So um, I heard an analogy once and I, I share it as widely as I can. The egg is a little bit like Beyonce. And if you know that Beyonce is going to be arriving on the red carpet at 7 p.m., you don't want to wait until you get a call from her doorman to say, I'm just about to open the door, which is in effect what an ovulation test strip is or a basal body temperature chart. You actually want to be there 12 hours before to make sure you get the good photo. And and that's exactly how it is with sperm. You know, you need to make sure that the sperm are there 12, 24, 36 hours before the egg is released in order to really ensure that there are lots of sperm there waiting when the egg is released. I love that analogy. And I think that it's so important to take the pressure off because people absolutely drive themselves crazy. I have the same conversation with people. I'm like, don't do ovulation predictor kits. If your doctor wants you to do it, fine. That's a different story. But otherwise, it really just serves to stress people out. Because I talk about how there is such a thing as trying to gather too much information in a way that it just isn't particularly useful and just causes a lot of stress. But I love that idea that you want to be waiting for 12 hours or a little bit more in advance for Beyonce to come out. So this question is is one I get a lot as well in that in order to effectively have the camera waiting for Beyonce to enter the red carpet, how often does somebody need to have sex assuming that the sperm is healthy? So if we assume that the sperm is is healthy and, and, you know, fitting within the normal parameters in inverted commas, um, then I generally tell people to be having sex roughly every two to three days from the end of their period through until they notice signs of ovulation. And part of my work is trying to sh- to, to get people to tune back in with themselves and get to know themselves and know what their own signs of ovulation are. And I can highlight a few bits and pieces, you know, a few different things that they might be. And I like them to keep track of those kinds of things and see if they, rather than relying on external things like thermometers and, and apps and, and stuff like that, to actually just tune back in with themselves and see how they feel. You know, you feel awesome when you're about to ovulate. Your clothes fit you. You want to go out. You want to meet people. You want to stand in front of the board and, and present a presentation. You, you know, that's great. It's a great time of the month and, and you should capitalize on that. I love that. So everybody, this is your official permission. No, you do not have to have sex with your partner every day in order to get pregnant. Hello. Hell no, not unless you want to. Of course, if you want to, great. Because yeah, sometimes your libido is extra high when you're fertile. So maybe you want to do it every day. But I meet a lot of people who are like, I can't have sex that much. And I'm like, great, you don't have to. It's totally fine. There was a study that was published, and and I think it was first brought to my attention back in the 90s, possibly, which was showing that um, sex during the luteal phase, so from ovulation to next period, could actually have an impact on implantation. I'm pretty confident the study was um, published by men, um, Mm -hmm. written by men. (laughs) <laughs> who just wanted more sex? Um, look, that I, I, you know, I would certainly tell, never tell anyone not to, um, but I don't think it's absolutely necessary for conception. I, I say that that sex in those weeks is is for building relationships and and trust and love and all those kinds of things. That it's therefore for fun and fun and games, um, not for for um, conception. 
Of course. And of course, we also have to remember that there are lots of different ways to have sex. It doesn't have to include penetration. So if you want to do other things post-ovulation, that's great. So I want to zoom into the context of being an IVF a little bit. I've been through thousands of IVF cycles alongside my acupuncture patients and coaching clients. And I've noticed this very common tendency among my patients when they're in the context of using IVF to get pregnant, because there's just so much more medical data that's available to them just by way of being under the care of a medical doctor and having all these regular tests. So people tend to hang on to their medical data like it has all of the answers. So for example, the grading of an embryo or the result of genetic testing on their embryos. And I talk to people on a regular basis about how there are limitations to what their medical data can actually tell them about their embryos and how there's still so much we don't know about how human reproduction works. So as somebody who's actually been in the lab working with these cells, can you talk about this a little bit? We use our best guesses. We gather data from thousands and thousands and thousands of embryos. We collate that data with other clinics. We are doing our very, very, very best to try and work out which is the best embryo. But at the end of the day, we actually don't know. And, and you know, even if we do genetic testing on an embryo, even those embryos only implant 60% of the time, 50 60% of the time. So there's a whole lot of variables that we actually can't control for. And, um, you know, coming back to what I started with before, talking about roadmaps, and we're so used to A plus B equals C. And if we don't get C, then we need to go back and work out what we did wrong to get the answer that we were expecting. And it's very mathematical and very clinical. And, and, and when we're then approach, when we then go down the IVF path, we expect that it's going to be clinical like that. You know, you go in and have your knee replaced. You, you have very clear expectations of what you expect at the end of that surgical procedure. And, you know, that's what you get. And then you go through IVF and someone says it's not going to work. It might not work. You know, it only works 25, 30% of the time. And people go, but this is science. Like, well, yeah, it's an art, actually. It's not a mathematical equation. It's an art. So I say to my clients all the time, forget the embryo grading. Let go of the embryo grading. Your clinic is not interested in freezing embryos or transferring embryos that do not have a realistic chance of pregnancy because that is only going to impact their statistics. And most clinics around the world these days are listed on league tables with their um, success rates and they want their success rates to be really high. So they are not going to transfer an embryo or freeze an embryo that doesn't have a realistic chance of pregnancy. So let go of the grading and go with it. If it's good enough to transfer or freeze, it's good enough to make a baby. I love that piece of just simple advice. If your doctor is saying that it's transferable, if your embryologist is saying there's a good chance and we should go ahead, then that's really all you need to know. And the grading itself just isn't that relevant. And the number of pregnancies that I've seen over the years from embryos that as an embryologist, I would have thrown away. And as a clinic, the clinic rules state that that embryo should not have been transferred and the patient has said I just need it for closure it's the last transfer I'm ever going to have that's it and we transfer against our our clinic guidelines the number of pregnancies I've seen from that is is outstanding so you know you just go well there's someone else who's got a big hand in here and at some point we actually have to just go 
you know what, we're doing everything we can to try and line these ducks up, but we don't have all the answers. Yeah. I think that that concept can be incredibly freeing and incredibly empowering and also a little bit scary because there's tens of thousands of dollars that people are spending on this process. They're remortgaging their house and they're putting their relationship at risk and it's it's high stakes. But I think that there's also freedom in that idea that we're all just doing the best they can. And there's still so much information that we don't have. There's still so much that science and medicine doesn't know or doesn't have language for yet. So leaning into that when you're kind of jumping off that cliff of, well, I guess it's just... <laughs> I'm going to surrender to the process now. I remember very, very early in my career, someone saying to me, God, you know, working in an IVF clinic, don't you feel like you're playing God or something? I'm like, no, I don't. I really don't. I feel like I'm helping someone, um, whoever that happens to be. But, you know, I can transfer three embryos into that are ostensibly the same grade into three different women who theoretically have the same reason for their infertility and they're the same age and you feel like you've corrected for all the variables you can and one of them will get pregnant and the other two won't. There's something else going on there and and who knows what that is. Yeah. And what an important piece of information to have directly from somebody who works in the lab because I can talk till I'm blue in the face about this idea that comparisons aren't particularly useful in terms of looking at other people's medical data. And yet we see it all the time. People go into online chat rooms and Facebook groups and they'll be like, I have, this is my FSH, this is my LH, this is my fertility diagnosis, it's egg quality, and I'm taking these medications and I'm on this protocol. What results did you get if you had a similar diagnosis? And the reality is that it's completely, not completely, but mostly useless to look at somebody else's medical data and try to compare it to your own. Incredibly useless because they might have a different BMI, they might have three dogs and two cats and you've got a budgie and a fish. They might have, you know, they might live in the city and you live in the country. They might do F45 training every day and you might do HIIT training. Like there are so many other variables. They might have their grandmother over for dinner three times a week and just sit and knit with her and you might, you know, run around the block every night for your mind set or whatever you know there there are so many variables that we can't possibly correct for and it is human nature to try and bring everything back to a mathematical equation that we can solve because that's where we're comfortable and and we we all feel comfortable in that space where we feel like we can get an answer and if something didn't work we can go back and work out why it didn't work and we can fix it for next time and when it comes to fertility, you just have to let that go. And, and you have to, me saying just let it go is a little bit like someone saying just relax and I, I don't want people to punch me in the head. But it's 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 about giving people the tools to be able to let that go, which is why I do what I do. And, and I explain to people what these things mean. Why is your FSH elevated? Your FSH means this, that and something else. And it's elevated because this, that and something else. And help them to understand what that actually means so that they can then unpack that a little bit and get to a place where they're comfortable with it. Yeah. And some of that process is just, I love that word uncomfortable and comfort that you use because actually coming face to face with this idea that, yeah, there is no way to go back and correct for it. 
like there is in a lot of other contexts in your life. That is incredibly uncomfortable. And sometimes it's just about sitting with that discomfort and accepting it and being okay with it. And that's a lot of the work that I do with my clients and in my membership. So last question, if somebody is going into their first IVF cycle, what do you think is the most important piece of advice that you think everyone should hear before embarking on this treatment process? I think they need knowledge. I think they need to know what to expect. A lot of times IVF is presented as something that you just do when nothing else works. And something I've been going on about a lot over the last couple of months is no one just does IVF. Um, and until you've done your first cycle, um, you probably don't really understand that. And a lot of people going into their first cycle are confident with their doctor they're confident that it's the right thing to do. They've done the tests that they're, you know, yep, okay, we don't want to be doing this, but we're doing it. And then they get halfway into it and they go, what the holy hell is going on here? And they suddenly drop their bundle completely because they don't know what, the, you know, what, what is going on? What do you mean that? And well, I have to make that decision about what, why? And so I think everyone before they embark on IVF should gather the information about exactly what happens in a basic IVF cycle. You know, I'm talking stuff we should have learned at school but wouldn't have been interesting to anyone at school because you didn't think you're ever going to need it, about what actually happens in a basic IVF cycle. So your general knowledge is brought up to a level that you can sit in your consultations with your doctor and your treatment team and be comfortable and confident asking the next question rather than the basic questions. I love that. Lucy, do you have any resources? And I know that this is something that you do in your programs and when you work with clients, but if somebody is just getting started, do you have any resources for people that they can look at to start to learn this process? Absolutely. So I've got a few um, heap of blogs on my website. So if you go to my website, there's a blog section there and I've written a lot of blogs. Probably my most read one is what is an embryologist? And that goes through, you know, what actually is an embryologist? What do we do? What makes us who we are? In addition to that, there are a number of masterclasses that you can do self-paced on my website. So you can go in there and, and pick one of the courses to do, starting with Fertility 101 um, through to Toxins and Fertility. And then there's obviously my big program, IVF WTF, which is available intermittently four times a year um, and open closed doors kind of sitch for that one. Okay, awesome. I just know that there are going to be people who want to reach out and connect with you. So where are people able to chat with you if they want to? So if people want to find me, they will find me on Instagram far too often at Two Lines Fertility. Um, also on Facebook at Two Lines Fertility or my website, www.twolinesfertility. That's T-W-O, lines, L-I-N-E-S, fertility.com.au. Don't forget the AU on the end because I'm in Australia. Perfect. So I will also make sure that I link all of that up in the show notes. People can just find that and click it easily. Lucy, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your knowledge and your perspective. And thank you for doing this amazing and important work that you're putting out into the world. I know that people need it and they're going to want to come and follow you and talk to you. Thank you so much for having me, Michelle. It's a pleasure to be here. If you are loving what you're learning in the podcast, you've got to check out The Pineapple Collective. 
It's my monthly group coaching membership where we take this work to the next level so you can learn to manage your mind and actually rewire your brain to reduce your stress and anxiety and avoid mental and emotional burnout during your fertility treatment process. Head to michellecapler.com forward slash pineapple to sign up today. I can't wait to see you there.